Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language service company. They have over a decade of industry experience providing on-site, video remote, and over-the-phone interpretation, translation, and ASL services to public and private sector clients. They're continuously recruiting for freelance interpreters and translators, so make sure to check out their website for new career opportunities. Liberty is passionate about making interpreter education more accessible to everyone. So whether you're new to interpreting or have been interpreting professionally for years, you can take advantage of their online courses, workshops, and CEUs. Their most popular online course is the Professional Medical Interpreter. It's a self-paced, comprehensive, 40-hour medical interpreting course for individuals looking to get qualified to interpret in medical and healthcare settings. Upon completion of the course, students will be able to earn the title of Qualified Medical Interpreter. And for a limited time only, Liberty is offering a discount for the Professional Medical Interpreter course to brand the interpreter listeners. Use the discount code BTI50 when you sign up online for the Professional Medical Interpreter to get $50 off the course. You can find the discount code and more information about Liberty Language Services in the episode notes. Hey, welcome back to another great episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is your host, Mireya Perez. Thanks for joining me today on this first day of October. Whoa, where has 2021 gone, right? And speaking of the end of this year, I'd like to ask if you could do me a huge favor. I'd really like for the podcast to have up to 50 reviews by the end of this year. That's my goal for this year. It's already at 23 on Apple Podcasts, so that means I only need 27 more people from this amazing Brand the Interpreter community to find a way to drop a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts, Audible, or any of your favorite podcast platforms that allow ratings. It would really make a huge difference for this podcast. Thank you so much in advance. And now, on with the show. Matthew Pegli was born and raised in the Thames Valley near London, UK. He holds a BA in Modern Languages in French and Spanish from the Queen's College, University of Oxford. He worked for six years as a staff interpreter at SCIC and then freelanced, mainly for EU institutions. His languages are A. English, B. Spanish, C. French, Italian, and Portuguese, and is an interpreter trainer specializing in English B with various European universities and Shanghai International Studies University since 2016. He's an English retour trainer for UN, EU, African Union, and AIC training, and a project leader of SCIC-funded online resources for conference interpreter training, as well as a writer-performer of theater and comedy and trainer in public speaking. So, without further ado, here's Matthew Perry. Matthew, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi there. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I'm very excited to have this transatlantic connection. <laughs> Speaking of which, where are you joining us from? I'm in Berlin. I live in Berlin, Germany. So it's afternoon here at the moment. Bit of sunshine through the window. It's been very weird, though. Mixture of sunshine and rain. Can't make up its mind. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, welcome. I'm so happy. Let's dive right in if you don't mind and just kind of share with uh, me and the audience. What did you aspire to be when you grew up? Ooh, well, um, there were lots of ideas going through my mind. I did have the really typical thing of wanting to be an engine driver. Uh, I think I'm still really into trains, but I'm not particularly into the driving part. I discovered quite early on that uh, pretending to do something seriously and failing 
could amuse people and deflect attention away from the fact that you were failing so that it actually looked like you were succeeding in doing something which was making people laugh. And uh, I loved that. And I loved also changing the way I communicated depending on the audience. Playing with these levels, I guess, I was really a bookworm and I was writing and writing with several layers, sort of fake autobiographies of myself set in later years and parodies, always a layer of irony in there somewhere. And part of that was definitely people's failure. Again, failure, great word. (laughs) One of my favorite words, failure to communicate. People think they're saying something, but they're understood differently. Is it the heart of a lot of comedy? It was at the heart of what fascinated me. So I didn't have a precise aspiration in terms of what on earth can you do with all those weird levels? There was nothing clear. It was basically equipping me to not quite fit into all sorts of situations. And it was only a couple of years after graduating that I realized that conference interpreting might at least be a way of running through some of these things, using these gears to, to help with communication. Uh, but that was after I'd been performing. So I was writing and performing already uh, before then, but not succeeding in making enough of a living at it. So various other factors came together then in terms of focusing on, on where to go next. I love that. Let's go back a little bit. So where did you uh, grow up, Matthew? I grew up near London uh, from a monolingual, monocultural English background with a French surname. My great, great grandfather emigrated from France to England in mysterious circumstances that uh, nobody has fully uh, clarified. But it means my surname is French, is pronounced the French way, Perrin which made me sort of stand out slightly, but it gave me no advantage with the French language at school. I learned it as my first foreign language at school, the same as everyone else. Although occasionally people would assume I might be better at it because of my name, which was something my father also uh, benefited from in his career as a civil engineer, that he was always asked to go to the Paris meetings simply because of his name, even though his (laughs) French was as bad as everybody else's. Um, So... (laughs) <laughs> I, I inherited that that slight sort of air of mystique or perhaps pretentiousness and uh, uh, sort of in, in, inappropriate uh, liking for food and wine and so on, all the stereotypes. And then moved on to Spanish uh, at 16, but again, as a completely foreign language. And it was later at university, I was studying modern languages at university in England Uh, that I realized that there could be a dimension of myself that was unlocked through these languages too. So I sort of created an alter ego already as an adult. I didn't have a childhood relationship with other languages. But like I said, I was having these very confusing um, feelings about different layers and barriers to communication already within one language, within my culture. So it seemed to fit quite naturally into that, that obsession I had with exploring the way people failed to communicate. Suddenly, once I had real, full, kind of enclosed languages where France was there and people were interacting in French, not always with any connection with anyone else. And then the same thing with Spain. And it was possible to physically travel there and enter that environment and inhabit it. And then suddenly explore this idea of, ah, this is a self-enclosed language environment, but maybe there is a little door somewhere to another one. Maybe people can communicate between these environments. And again, this was long before I looked at the profession of interpreting. I love that. So at a young age, you already knew that there was this sense of wanting to, or being called into communication somehow, right? So you're feeling the sense of, you know, there's there's a bit of of um, communication barriers, perhaps, um, and you're and you're trying to redefine what that means for you at such a young age. It sounds like when did you begin to get interested in the other language? Was it because you you mentioned French that you started getting into um, 
And then when did Spanish come into play? Well, the first uh, point I'd make, I think, is that you make it sound very positive, which is very flattering, like I discovered I had a gift or something. It was really the opposite of discovering I had a gift. It was discovering one aspect of failure, as I said earlier, which I don't think there's anything wrong with. I think it's a, a, a lovely, fascinating part of uh, humanity. As I thought then, people failing to communicate is sometimes funny, and it is also utterly fascinating to me. And that's why I find the job so gratifying. But at that time, before I discovered there was a job that you could do with it, it just seemed like another aspect of failure, uh, not totally fitting in, feeling an outsider, even though you don't have any justification for outsider status, in a sense, wanting to open these doors to other ways of looking at things. So yes, with French, that that connection first came, but it was much deeper with Spanish. So it was after 16. Until then, I'd say really, it was a subject. It was a school subject. I did enjoy French and Latin and German, but uh, French slightly more than the others. And then at 16, I was given the option of starting Spanish from scratch. And quite quickly, that turned into a different kind of relationship and like I said a sort of building an alter ego so throughout my career really I felt like I've had a sort of alternative Spanish speaking identity people think that's normal now because I'm a bi-active interpreter and you know it's what we technically call a B language and so on so people don't look at me strangely when I say that now because professionally I work both ways between two languages. But it really dates back to when I was 18, 19. And instead of hanging out with my fellow students in England, I discovered the pub that the Spanish visiting students went to and all spoke Spanish to each other. So their poor parents were spending a fortune sending them to England for them to improve their (laughs) English. And all they did was party with other Spaniards in the safe environment of the sort of European exchange student pub, uh, which I sort of got a free pass to. And then suddenly it all took off. I I tried to integrate into that group so that I could be one of the insiders in the outsider group. And so I really developed a a Spanish-speaking alter ego without leaving England. Pretty soon after that, as soon as I had the opportunity... I went to Spain and lived there and it didn't uh, disappoint me in cultural and linguistic terms. Fortunately, I discovered that the the real place was certainly not inferior to the place that I'd imagined, which, of course, it could have turned out to be, I guess. I could have discovered that that little microcosm of uh, students was not reflected in the, in the wider country. There was a lot more to discover. Of course, I was very naive and had had very limited life experiences then. Uh, But those sort of parallel paths, if you like, of developing two different personalities really took off from then on. But yeah, probably as late as 20 or so, I'd say. And did this come after your um, experience in the university that, you know, your desire to say, you know what, I'm going to take this path because you can be inspired or have that that desire or that thought and still choose not to pursue it but in your case you did and so do you do you remember like was this was this something that that grew in you while you you were in the university or how did that come about well here i think uh, I wasn't thinking in professional terms. So I sense right. that underpinning your question is an idea of doing something for a living. And again, this probably sounds sort of very pretentious and uh, airy-fairy, but I was studying literature. The, at Oxford, a, a, li- a languages degree is very, very literary. So we were studying authors. And when we did translation, it was only ever literary translation in in both directions. So the entire academic experience was literary. And I was writing in English as well. I I felt, as as I told you, that from a very early age, I was someone who was kind of living alongside and interacting with the world of 
literature. So I'd seen writers who'd translated or who'd lived in another culture and described it. And I knew that that reflected my own reality. I didn't know whether I would be capable of writing anything on a par with what those writers of the past had done. But I knew that that was my life, that what they described was the way I the way I'd lived my life even when I was monolingual. I, I compare it with um, Thai food, which has more chilies than almost anything I've come across. And I <laughs> absolutely love chilies. Thailand is the only place where I move the chilies to the side of the plate because there are just too many of them. But chilies originate in the Americas. And apparently, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, before chilies came to that part of Asia, in Thailand, they would have a laborious, uh, very labor-intensive process of grinding up various naturally occurring spices to create a spicy paste. So it was almost as though they'd invented chili before they found the real thing, or they were kind of living alongside a, a, a kind of shadow projected from the future of what this key ingredient was going to be. And again, I, I, yeah, I've probably used the word pretentious for the third time now. Everybody's going to be shaking their fist at whatever apparatus they're listening to this on. So yeah. thank goodness this person's been sent out to try and negotiate uh, trade agreements on the harmonization of technical specifications for the size of nails that nowhere near I'm certain we, we can't let this person loose on anything else so you go through the you uh the academic experience you're studying literature and and did you say I'm going to take a break or I guess I'm what I'm getting at is how did you decide you know what this has been something that that I've connected with through books, through literature. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to Spain. How did that come about? I guess I'm, I'm trying to come back to the, that experience because I've romanticized about Spain for many years since I was a kid, but here I am still in California. <laughs> so I guess I'm trying to get like, how did that come out for you and making that happen? It was a train ride away. And even at 17, I persuaded my best friend that a week in Madrid would be fun. And we went off with backpacks and traveled by train and boat. And my parents agreed on the condition that uh, I take a friend who didn't speak any Spanish because I'd only done a year of Spanish at school. And it was quite urgent that I uh, sort of improve before having to sit the A-levels, the school leaving exams. So <laughs> we went for... a. Uh, a kind of cheap backpacking experience, staying in small hotels, sharing a room. And I did all the talking for both of us. And so I did have a kind of exposure in that sense. It wasn't so geographically far away. And obviously, lots of other people were jetting to and fro as an hour and a half to our flight. But being a train enthusiast, that was the way I, I wanted to do it. And as part of the academic course, there was a year abroad. It was a four-year course with a year abroad. A lot of my classmates went and taught English. They were English assistants at universities and things like that. I found a way of basically doing poetry readings and translating local poets in Granada. And then when I was in my final year as an undergraduate, again, there was no real decision or plan about this, I sat a scholarship examination, which was intended for postgraduates, but it was open to us as well. And I sat it as practice for my final exams. My tutor said, this is kind of a bit beyond the level you would normally be at, but it, uh, that way finals won't seem so daunting. If you get this under your belt first, it'll be good practice and there's nothing to lose. And uh, as a result of it, I was awarded a scholarship for one year doing literary translation in Spain. So I went back to the University of Granada as a kind of with, with this sort of inevitability about it. There was this flow of the various things that I'd got myself into that led to me uh, living there. And it was only at the end of that, so one year after graduation, that I had to start seriously thinking about how do I earn a living? Where do I want to live? I went to Paris, visited their interpreting school because I'd been thinking 
literary translation is fantastic and it clearly is sort of me in a sense, but can I earn a living? And after the scholarship ran out, that was looking increasingly difficult. And I saw uh, that conference interpreting with my languages might possibly be an option. So I went to the Paris school and they said, oh, no, no way. You need three languages at least. So I at least bought their textbooks and studied the the French textbooks, the kind of Siliskovich kind of uh, theoretical outline of what interpreter training was. So the, the sort of uh, late 20th century Paris school of interpreting, I absorbed that uh, theory before coming anywhere near the training itself. And then the European Commission was offering traineeships. So they would um, give you a small allowance to go and be trained in-house by their own interpreters with eliminatory exams every two months. That uh, ceased to exist soon after I did it. But in those days, that was still available. There was a selection process first. So Again, I thought nothing to lose. I went and did that. And then I started the training and thought, well, I probably won't be able to do this. Uh, listening and speaking at the same time is probably one of these rare skills that you have to be born with, like uh, being an opera singer or an astronaut or something else that's equally beyond me. It's, so it's probably not going to be me, but it might be fun. I'll meet lots of people from different European countries and if the worst comes to the worst, I'll have spent a few months learning about this skill set and meeting people, and then I'll get sent home again. But I won't have lost very much time or money in the meantime with the way I thought about it. And I've thought about that a lot more recently because in more recent years, I've been training student interpreters. And the idea that you could accidentally walk into conference interpreting without seriously thinking about an investment of time or money seems inconceivable in the 21st century, but somehow that w was still possible at the tail end of the 20th century. <laughs> and I did sort of stumble into it. Oh my gosh, that is so fascinating. And then you stumble into it and years later, here you are. So what about it convinced you? I actually think I can do it. Did you approach it in this comical sort of way to say, hey, I, you know, I think I, I absolutely can. Or how did you make that transition to actually convincing yourself? I, I think I can do this. I think I had a tension between two sides of me. When I look back at it now, at the time, I didn't realize this. I was just, I thought I was just messing around, having fun. I was sort of trying to do what was asked of me, but I was also slightly subverting it and trying to make everyone else laugh, uh, which is what I'd always done with everything and continue to do with almost everything. So again, that could have set me up for a massive failure. And in many professions, I think it probably would have. And I think one of the ways in which it worked in this case was that there was this tension between the two sides. So I knew what serious, proper, responsible translation was. Uh, and having a discipline and conscientiousness, perfectionism, attention to detail. I'd seen that in academia. I'd seen that in literary translation. I got it. It didn't totally match my temperament. And there was this other side to me that basically wanted to be a public speaker and wanted to be standing up and uh, engaging with an audience. And so that was happening spontaneously too. And of course, that meant that quite early on, I was accused of things like bluffing or of embellishing, as it's called in interpreter parlance, because I was giving my own speech. But if in doubt, I would always give a performance. And I think that slightly made the difference between myself and somebody who was a perfectionist because of the translation background, who, when in doubt, was paralyzed, because if they didn't have the right answer, they were incapable of communicating. And our trainers were trying to instill in us these ideas of communicating. But in my case, it was more pulling in the opposite direction. It was rein it all in, stop completely inventing things, and try to make your own speech at least 
touch touch base from time to time with what the speaker's saying in the other language. And as long as you manage to touch base from time to time, make it convincing enough for people to think that it's not completely detached from what the sort of speaker said, actually your audience will enjoy it. So I needed the lesson in, in intellectual rigor, fidelity, discipline, but I was coming at it from uh, both extremes, if you like, in a way that eventually I worked through that that tension to find a path somewhere in the middle and then separated things out again so that the performer, me, could be outside the booth and I could be more constrained inside the booth because I was letting that person free once I stepped outside. And that was how ultimately I resolved those tensions. When you're in school and you're thinking about this and how this is going to be applied um, outside of the uh, academia is one thing, right? You're thinking about it and you're like, wow, you know, I think I, I flow more in this style. And then you actually go out there and get your first pain assignment. What was that like for you? Do you recall that moment when you actually went out there on your own, you're done with school, this isn't school related anymore, and you have that first assignment, what was that like? So the structure was slightly different in the sense that I'd been trained in-house. So rather than going from school to assignment, it was simply that we were switching roles within the same place, if you like. We were still in the European Commission, and the People who'd been training me were still there and the people I'd been training alongside were still there. It's just that whereas they would be teachers and we would be pupils, suddenly we were all equal. Mm. And where they previously had a microphone that had a red light which switched on and we didn't, whatever we said would only be heard and commented on by those teachers, suddenly we had a microphone with a red light that also went on and there were other people in the room reacting to what we said. So that was nonetheless a huge shock. So despite the fact there wasn't a big physical transition, as I was saying, that role reversal uh, and the fact that we had real-life consequences of what we said, yes, was pretty terrifying. I remember the half hours when I started out, it was a French presidency. So everything was chaired in French. So a half hour really meant working nonstop in the English booth. And it seemed eternal. I was clock watching in a way I'd never done before. Even the worst dentist appointment didn't have (laughs) half hours that lasted as long as the the first half hour in the morning on one of my first days at work. And somehow my booth mate's half hour would just fly by. And before I'd even got up to speed with realising what was happening in the meeting, it was back to me. Um, So I I do remember that very well. And pretty soon after that, I think I realised how comforting it was to be uh, alongside my teachers so I could turn to them. There was a mentoring role. It wasn't called that then, but that was clearly uh, a very smooth transition so that the the teacher lets the apprentice, if you like, get work experience mm. and try their hand and do a few things. But it was almost like in a driving lesson when the driving instructor can also activate their own brake and prevent an awful accident if, if you're a totally <laughs> incompetent uh, driver. And there was that slight feeling too that, yes, we're on mic, yes, we really were being heard, but there was an experienced professional alongside us analyzing the situation who could if necessary intervene in the medium term give us feedback for next time don't ever say that again that's well that's a false friend watch out for that next time and so on Uh, but even in the short term if we were really overwhelmed they could take over the microphone or they could offer to do certain speakers who were particularly tricky or where they could see a problem coming in advance that we were blissfully unaware of. I think that mentorship piece is something that um, personally, I feel is quite a missing link in a lot of the other uh, interpreter specializations, you know, and the other trainings. And um, 
I find that that's something that would be an, an amazing type of approach for lack of a better word and being able to, before getting out there on our own, um, have the ability to be mentored and guided, like, you know, and have that immediate feedback, which is something that um, in our school district, we've sort of implemented because, you know, we have trained interpreters that come in, but it's not something that they specialize in necessarily. And so there is, you know, this kind of like a shadowing, if you would, and then the feedback piece, which is so important. But going back to your story, I'd like to know at what point in your career did your two different personalities clash or did they ever? Hey, before we continue, let me tell you a little bit about the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary. The HLS Education Terms Online Glossary provides easy access to the Spanish translation of educational terms. No more shuffling through countless glossaries. The HLS Network of Language Consultants comprises a veteran district and county office of education translators that have an in-depth knowledge of K-12 terminology. Translators will have access to terms, acronyms, and phrases related to special education, English language learner programs, parent advisory committees, medical and legal vocabulary, academic subject-specific terms, and so much more. In addition, this live glossary allows users to request new terms and tag favorites. Using the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary will increase your translation speed, accuracy, and vocabulary consistency. Try a free 30-day trial today by visiting www.hlsglossary.com. I think there was always an innate clash. So like I said, I was aware of the tension during my training. And I think it was resolved in a sense by the drawing upon the best of both to meet somewhere in the middle. So I didn't feel I had to switch anything off per se because all of my communication skills could be relevant to interpreting. It's just they wouldn't all be relevant all of the time. And the criteria for deciding which ones were relevant were not what I felt like doing or how I felt about the communication, but what the speaker was doing and what the speaker's intention was. Mm. So once I'd built that connection, if you like, I think the, the tension was resolved in a sense. What it meant was obviously there was a limit. So if you have extremely boring speakers, for want of a better word, people who are not exploring the full range of their communicative uh, capacity, you can still be a communicative interpreter, but it slightly limits your range too. And so if you find that a frustration, then I think it can be helpful to go out and do other things too. And at first training, was an opportunity. So I could walk into a room and have a captive audience of people who were supposed to pretend to at least look interested in what I had to say about everything. <laughs> so that, in a sense, I was talking about interpreting. I was training people to interpret. But at the same time, it was clearly an outlet for uh, some aspects of performance. The more I've seen of training, the more I think actually that there was the same tension there too. I see uh, interpreters who go off and give training, who sometimes clearly are just using it as a pure outlet for their own opportunity to share their thoughts on things because they feel like they're always the voice of the speaker. They're never allowed to speak for themselves. So you do sometimes get this sort of hour-long anecdote scenario. Who am I to talk? I mean, I basically accepted your invitation to come and tell <laughs> hour-long anecdotes here today all the pads of everybody but uh so who am i to uh cast the first stone but i have seen training sessions where trainers are self-absorbed let's say rather than accompanying mm. the students on their journey so i think yes there's another tension there too that you have to bring things to bear when they're relevant to the uh purpose of the exercise so just as the speaker has an intention the training exercise has a purpose but it's liberating compared to the pure strictures of the booth. And I was doing theatre, writing and performing in the theatre in a way that was completely unrelated to my day job. I was taking, when I was a staff interpreter, I was taking unpaid leave precisely in order to have another life. 
uh, and as a freelance, obviously, I no longer had to do that. I could weigh up the different aspects of my life uh, with with more of a, a margin for maneuver. What would you say, Matthew, has been the biggest challenge in your career? Uh, do you mean in, in career terms, in terms of managing a career or in terms of the doing the interpreting? <laughs> uh, either <laughs> one, I think whichever you felt was a challenge, you know. Goodness. Uh, I think it's so full of micro challenges that there are some paradoxes there too. So I'd say the sheer accumulation of micro challenges is something I relish. So that in a way is no longer a challenge. That's one paradox. The fact that I'm being constantly challenged is what makes me get out of bed in the morning. That's why I enjoy the job. So I can't describe that as a challenge. The adrenaline, the feeling that things are constantly slightly out of your grasp, that you're never really going to be able to do justice to a really good speaker. I don't perceive as a a challenge either in the sense that that's the definition of what we do. We're helping someone who would understand nothing. We're not giving second best to somebody who understands everything. We're giving a helping hand to the person who understands nothing. So again, it's not really uh, a challenge unless you're a perfectionist. So actually, I've come full circle, I think, back to what I was talking about failure. I, I sort of relish failure too. I find it fascinating and interesting. So as long as you are comfortable with failure, you don't find uh, a challenge which is insurmountable, something unbearable. You you live with it and even find enjoyable and amusing aspects of it. If everything's taken away from you, that clearly is harder to cope with. So challenge in the sense of how do I cope? How do I continue to get out of bed in the morning, want to do this? The pandemic has been a massive hit to anyone who's in the communication sector, I think. And I think it's been a lot worse for a lot of my friends who are performers who thrive on the live performance with the live audience. I've only had a small part of of that hit. There are people who've switched to online work very successfully. And obviously, I've been interpreting hybrid meetings with some of the speakers being remote some of the audience, sometimes a lot or almost all of the audience, not being physically present where I am doing the interpreting. And that forces you to redefine a lot of aspects of what you're doing. So yes, it's a challenge sometimes psychologically to think, well, what's the difference between this and just doing a recording or just kind of sending in some bits here and there? It's no longer a person-to-person thing that that I'm doing. So responding to that has certainly been a psychological challenge. But again, I have to say, I'm sort of relishing parts of it. I'd be be lying if I said that it hasn't been a a difficult year with existential dilemmas and soul searching and desperate, desperate days of thinking, what is the point where I'll be going? Yes, there's been that. Um, But I think I'm also relishing some of the new opportunities because there are things which are possible now, which were not possible before. So only two weeks ago, I had somebody in the office next door who hadn't come into the meeting and had terrible sound. And it was incredibly frustrating. And you don't get the eye contact and think, what on earth am I doing? And then they were able to have a nice conversation with uh, somebody who is an activist, an environmental activist in the Amazon rainforest who apologized for their sound quality because there was a storm in the rainforest and the water was bouncing off the tent that they were sitting in. But they had an excellent microphone. So apart from the background drumming of the water, the sound quality that I was getting in Europe from the Amazon rainforest was superior to the sound quality I was getting from the office next door. And as an, so as an interpreter, I was happy. But overall, in human communication terms, I think we were all happy that somebody who would not have been invited previously to attend a meeting in Europe 
who would not have been able to afford the plane fare and who no, for whom no institution would have paid a plane fare for a five or 10 minute conversation was able to have that conversation and say, this is what's happening right now here where I am. So yes, I join the chorus of doom and gloom and saying <laughs> real face-to-face conferences are better. Of course they are, but real face-to-face conferences didn't include everybody either. I love that. And it's, yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I mean, it's somebody that perhaps necessarily wouldn't have been there and is out in a rainforest under a tent in a storm and is still present per se, right? So that's incredible. I mean, just the story in itself, when you think about it in that way, um, yeah, you're super amazed that you're a part of something uh, so amazing. So um, I love that. Matthew, I'd like to maybe delve just a little bit into, because the, you know, the, the, the conversation or the topic of failure is, you know, we could spend so much time on just that one topic, but how do you tell, or what do you tell your students about approaching failure? How, how should you approach it? Because in your case, you thrive in the face of challenge, (laughs) but for many of us, we might just be in complete despair for a while. Not, not to say that that's something I've ever done or anything like that. I'm not admitting anything, but it could be months before we pick ourselves back up after something that we entitle as failure, because it's such a, it's got a strong connotation for, for very many of us um, uh, on the negative side. So What recommendation do you give your students with regards to the topic of failure as an interpreter? I think with students, what I would do is talk about the definition of what it is we're trying to achieve up front. As with any class, you set an aim for the exercise and only then can you judge whether it has been successful or not. And I think the same with judging any interpreting assignment You need to be clear as to how you will judge success before you try to reach that decision. Mm -hmm. And I think that is clearly a get out clause. So it's a way of saying, oh, well, that wasn't what I was trying to do in the first place. So actually, I have succeeded. I wasn't trying to say everything the speaker said. I was only trying to give the main example. So actually, I was successful. Uh, Or, you know, as I was saying before, I was trying to give an amusing speech in English. That's what I was trying to do. I wasn't trying to say everything they said in Spanish. So clearly there's a get out clause there, just as there is for the comedian in me, as I was saying before, that by failing to do something in quite a serious way, taking yourself very seriously and failing at something is very funny. Uh, So if you're setting out to make people laugh, then you're always successful when you're a failure. So again, it's a get out clause in a way. It's a fear of failure in a way. I think deep down, we're all like you, as you were describing this sort of desperation of of defeat. It's one of many coping mechanisms for it to, to try to redefine what you're doing. It's also something I learned at Oxford, which I think is a wonderful university, but there are certain traits which I think it encourages. One is bullshitting, if I'm allowed to use that term, and uh, another is redefining the terms of the question. So whenever you're asked to write an essay on a particular topic at Oxford, uh, you start by saying, what do you mean by the word essay? What do you mean by the word topic? It all depends on what we mean by an essay on a topic. And you deconstruct those three terms for pages and pages and pages, and that's how you get a good mark. So I'd already been sort of brainwashed into that. So when uh, I was given an interpreting exercise and told, here's a French speech, give that same speech in English, I said, ah, same, but how can an English speech be the same as a French speech? Surely the fact that it is in a different language will mean there are differences. And already you're looking for a get-out clause. You're looking for a way of saying, ah, but... That's just how we say it in English. That's why it doesn't sound like it did in French. And these are all the discussions you have in every interpreting class. Uh, always, of course, you know, how close are you? How much contamination? What is a false friend? But the way you frame the discussion, I think, depends on your definition of what 
success will be. And I prefer to go back to the pure customer. I've always found the pure customer very helpful. Psychologically, this is the person who needs you. So as I said before, the person who would be getting nothing without the assistance of an interpreter. And I train a lot of uh, students in China with Chinese A, English B uh, combination, and I still haven't learned much Chinese. So I don't have to pretend to be a pure customer. I genuinely rely on my Chinese interpreters to tell me a story. And that, I think, makes me a better teacher. I think I'm a better trainer when I don't understand the original than when I do. Obviously, there are aspects of omniscient checking, aspects of fidelity that you have to go into, and you need qualified people to analyze them. But my measure of the success of an interpreting class or an interpreting exercise is not, is the checker happy? My measure is, is the pure customer happy and still happy after they've been informed by a checker as to whether there was some major problem. So clearly, if there's major omission or distortion, when they find that out, they will no longer be a happy customer. But if they are a happy customer, then I believe the exercise has been a success. And if they're grateful for anything that they've received, then I believe the exercise has been a success. There, of course, are elements of failure that we have to be honest about, but I'm not sure even the term is helpful there. So my own framing of it as a stimulation to find the get out clauses or redefine what you're doing, I have found helpful. But as a negative judgment, what you described as being paralyzed, feeling defeated by it, I think is, is far more common. And what I would say where we have had omission or distortion, we've had one of these problems, we can say this aspect of the interpreting was not a success. I think it is much more helpful to be very specific about what that is and say, this was an omission. This uh, argument was distorted. The customer left with a misleading impression, left with a very clear idea, but the wrong idea because it wasn't the speaker's idea. And this could have happened for the following reason. The interpreter made a wrong assumption. The interpreter misallocated some context, misattributed some remarks, whatever it might be. Once you get into that level of detail, you're no longer really talking about total failure. What you're talking about is a micro failure of judgment in relation to some element. It could have huge consequences. I don't mean to minimize the impact of bad interpreting. I think we should be honest and upfront about what bad interpreting is, because if bad interpreting didn't exist, there wouldn't be a justification for good interpreters earning a decent living for doing a decent job. So I don't want to kind of get, have a get-out clause there for excusing. Yeah, yeah. But it's been very, very specific about what has happened and why, so that we contextualise what otherwise might be perceived as failure. Being very specific and then asking those very specific questions. I love that. What has been the highlight of your career, Matthew? Oh, dear. Uh, as an interpreter. As an interpreter. As a trainer. As, as, as all of the above, because I think that it's, you know, it's not just, I personally don't feel that it's just fixed to one. I think it's a combination of everything that makes us who we are. So not just the interpreter, but if it's interpreting and trainer and, you know, a little bit, uh, a dash of that comedy and uh, literature, if it's all of that together, well, even better. That's fantastic. You see, without realizing it, I've just applied the technique that I was talking about earlier, the lazy Oxford technique for uh, um, avoiding answering the question. <laughs> just try to question the definitions of the terms and then somehow some sort of answer falls onto your plate. So by saying, what do we mean by my career, which was my throwback question immediately to you, you've actually answered the question now yourself because as soon as you start thinking about what was my career, 
it is clear that the only possible highlight that one could mention is when all of the different strands come together. It's exactly what you just said. So I'll have to say doing a MOOC, a massive online open course, hope I've got the, all the O's right and in the right order, for Shanghai International Studies University last year for retour interpreters from Chinese. So all interpreters working from native Chinese into a range of other uh, global and regional languages through the medium of English, which is my language and where there's a significant corpus of interpreter training, but trying to open up these skills so that Chinese interpreters can develop skills that will help them be effective communicators in many other world languages. So I could draw upon my experience as an English native interpreter, my experience as a trainer of interpreters who are working into non-native English. And in order to be an effective communicator, my focus is on many aspects of public speaking and performance. Fourthly, in order to be an effective trainer and give these sort of supposed gobbets of knowledge and insight and enlightenment in these sort of small online uh, pieces, in order to be a communicator myself of the pedagogical material that I'm trying to share, I was given some freedom to be creative and to use comedy from time to time, which is a privilege I've had in recent years. As I was saying, when I was starting out, it was something I had to try to switch off because people generally disapproved of it. Not being serious undermined your ability to do a good job as an interpreter. So I was very conscious early on in my career that in order to be a good interpreter, I had to deactivate all these other instincts in order to be taken seriously, in order for people to say, no, he's all right, he can actually do it, not a complete clown. Uh, and slowly, as you sort of descend into boring, grey, middle age, being a bit of a clown is suddenly seen as some kind of advantage. It's kind of like, oh, no, he's not completely grey and anonymous <laughs> and boring. It's actually human. He has light and shade and so on. So as a trainer, when I'm asked to do things with a bit of light and shade and contrast and human humour, that that is the highlight. But I think I what I love about that, Matthew, and this is we're going to enter into some of the the content, the video content that is created um, with that humor. And, and what I love the most, um, I first came across years ago, uh, one of your uh, uh, videos, which was on um, Shushotaj, right? The Whisper Interpreting video. And I, what I love the most, what I remember thinking back then was like, I love how there's this seriousness combined with humor. Like he's serious. It's not like he's trying to be funny, but there's so much humor in this. And I, that to me, I was super, you know, attracted uh, to, to that combination of the seriousness, the role, obviously there's always this seriousness attached to the role, but the way in which you presented the information, it stuck in my mind and, you know, because it was fun, it was funny. So I, I personally think that you are absolutely still in a way, um, engine driving. You're just engine driving, you know, putting together your own um, aspects of what this role ought to look like for you with, you know, the alter ego, with the humor, with, you know, combination of the seriousness with, you know, the languages and the way in which you approach um, even instruction, you know, for your students. I think that it's still, uh, in, a, in a way, you, you did grow up to be an engine driver. You are most definitely, in my eyes, at least a train conductor, as we call them here. So all aboard. Matthew, I, I want to add these videos, in particular, the one that you guys most recently um, put out. And I, I, at some point, I'd love the opportunity to even sit down with Lourdes. But why are you a part of these videos, which are amazing, by the way? I super enjoy them on, on the viewer end. I think they're, they're just great, for lack of a better word. Why the videos in this way? 
Oh, well, it's, it's linked to the last question in a way. It's the strands coming together and the slowly having more freedom. So as I got more experience as a trainer, I would sometimes be asked to give guidance or pedagogical structure to things or to come up with ways of explaining things, training of trainers and, and so on. There were also big challenges after 2004, especially with the Big Bang enlargement of the European Union. So there was suddenly uh, many more official languages at the European Union institutions for which there were not interpreters and especially for which there was not passive uh, knowledge in other countries of these languages. So there was a lot more use of retour. People from uh, these countries were trained to become interpreters with a second active language right from the start, just as happens on uh, most private markets around the world. But the European Union quickly had to shift into large-scale use of non-native languages, including English. And some of us at the beginning were making it up as we went along. And then slowly, through trial and error and through working with very talented people, began to establish a methodology for helping people work into a non native language, which, as I say, I've been doing a lot more of in, in recent years. For Chinese, too, they were sort of inventing it at the UN once it became an official language at the, at the UN. So there wasn't a massive uh, sort of tradition of training theory as distinct from general interpreting theory. So at any rate, that, in a sense, is a sort of dry academic area. Uh, but Whenever you're doing something new, there is an opportunity to do it in a different way. So we didn't have to do everything by the book the way all previous chapters of interpreter training had been done. And one example was using technology that when the University of Leeds was involved in developing online resources for conference interpreter training in the early 2000s, we were developing some online resources with some help from the European Commission. And there I'd be asked to come up with an idea for a two or three minute video. And at that point, I hadn't really crossed over the two. I had my writer-performer life as a completely different life to the day job. But when someone says, what format would you use for a two or three minute video to get some points across... I was already finding that in the classroom, sometimes my ways of explaining things would help people to visualize what the point was. Also, I'd looked at satire a lot. I'd played Peter Cook, the 1960s British satirist um, on stage, and he came from a family of diplomats, but was a, a comedian and a satirist. So he would be poking fun at the kind of language people used in officialdom but to make very profound points to the extent that this was one of the first occasions when a prime minister would go and watch a comedy show in which somebody would be on stage impersonating him and take it in good spirit. And everyone would say, well, this is interesting and this is telling us something. It's not, uh, like you were saying before, not just trying to be funny. It's not uh, a takedown, rudely poking fun at someone just because they're in the public eye. In satire, there is some kind of underlying message which enters into a dialogue with officialdom too. By laughing at something, you enter into a relationship with it and you become stronger as a spectator too. It's a way of having a relationship with something that otherwise would just be coming down on you, something you would be passively enduring as a, as a subject of the uh, government, or in this case, an interpreter student being told that something is wrong or being told what the right way to do something is. And then off you go, fail to do it, told that you're a failure, told you did it the wrong way. That's not really teaching in a sense. That is how a lot of interpreter training used to uh, occur. So putting all of this together in the round, you have a moment, I saw an opportunity there to tell the story in a different way and in a way empower the audience to enter into a relationship with what was going on. So here I am, teacher, on stage, figure of authority, telling you as an experienced interpreter how I would do things 
you as student passively consume that and listen to it and feel a failure. Uh, creatively, I was thinking maybe it's more productive to do things a different way. Maybe it's more productive if the student is engaged and interactive, if the student answers back. So a bit like at a comedy gig, you have a heckler. If nobody enjoys the heckle, the performer shuts them down with iron uh, discipline and continues with the script. If the heckle is funny, it changes the script. It changes the direction. You go into improv. You have comedians improvising off each other and off interruptions, and you have a different dynamic. So I thought in training you could have something similar. In a video, it's hard to reproduce the interruption, the heckling, but a classic technique is simply to attribute this. So the same as in a stand-up monologue, you can have lots of voices. You can also have, I know what you're thinking, or I know what you'll say. So as trainer, I would go into that mode. As interpreter, I think about my pure customer. As trainer, my pure customer is the student. So I empathize with the student and answer back. I interrupt the class and heckle the teacher as the student. And then I put that back into my own voice as teacher and have the argument with myself, (laughs) that kind of slightly chaotic stand-up routine being undermined by the audience. So we're back to a failure. as As a class, it doesn't work. It's been undermined. The very serious, pompous professor has been knocked off his perch. And everybody loves that. It's what everybody wants to see. It's what students have been crying out for all day long, all through all of their lectures. So I was trying to reproduce that dynamic in a, in a short video. And with Lourdes, I had even more freedom than in Orset, the online resources for conference interpreter training, because uh, she would literally come to me and say, I want to talk about this topic, but you have complete freedom for the format and how you want to do it and how you want it to be edited and how you want the voices to interact. Uh, we would discuss it and she would ha- uh, would give me creative uh, input too, but there wasn't the kind of censorship that I might have had for, for something official. I was not speaking on anyone else's behalf. This was not an official training video. This was just Lourdes and I having some fun. And that, I think, unlocked some more creative potential. Oh, my, just simply genius. And it it um, it comes through in the quality of the video. And um, like I mentioned earlier, the ability for it to stay in one's mind um, with, with so much pleasure and so much more ease. Um, I think it's simply genius. We have covered so many amazing topics today. So many great topics, Matthew. We have talked about alter ego. We have talked about embracing alter ego, embracing failure, right? Like uh, asking those questions, being very specific about what it is um, that we are defining failure as, what it is that we want to uh, get at or, or see. And of course, the important one right now is that freedom of creativity to be able to combine what we enjoy most and um, being able to kind of see that flourish as a highlight in our career is perhaps one of the best things that can happen. So being able to bring that all together and we're getting ready to wrap up here, Matthew, but before we go, where can our listeners find out more about you and all of the incredible work that you do? Oh, well, uh, follow this link <laughs> right here. Oh, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work, work here. Work it podcast, uh, podcast, Matthew. Right. <laughs> Have this flashing up on, on screen now. Before you leave, you must pay Subscribe. your $500 per year to the following subscription-only site. Uh, I have touched upon some of the background and the stories I was talking about just now in a blog on WordPress, which is called Fun with the Foreigners. And my name will probably uh, bring it up from a search engine if people are interested in my relationship with different languages and cultures over the years. 
where I go into a bit more detail than I have today. Otherwise, Lourdes's channel has uh, videos and I have a YouTube channel too where I've put up some poetry and songs of my own. Trying to think what else there might be. If think of anything else, I'll, I'll email it to you so that you can uh, put it on put it on screen. I found you on LinkedIn too, so I know you're on there. <laughs> you, can, you can consult me on uh, LinkedIn about all your professional needs and requirements. You have been incredible, Matthew. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I am very much looking forward to sharing this episode with the audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me for your really interesting uh, questions, some of which you answered yourself, which is fantastic because it meant that I could avoid uh, avoid them in the Oxford style. Uh, but most of all, thank you for calling me an engine driver. That has really, really made my day. So I shall now uh, tootle off into the wild blue yonder. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.